Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So glad to have you with me for the second part of a four-part series of Stefan Zweig's The Burning Secret. Last time, we met in the summer resort town of Zemmering, an elegant and mysterious Austrian aristocrat, a man for whom amorous adventures are akin to the hunt. He sights his prey in the Viennese lady who is here on holiday with her twelve-year-old son, Edgar. In order to get close to the mother, the baron befriends the boy, who is absolutely charmed and thrilled to be taken seriously by an adult. Edgar soon finds himself jealous of the friendship when his mother proves eager to be with the charming count as well, and the boy grows uneasy as he begins to find himself excluded from their company. At the end of last week's episode, the mother, having sent Edgar up to bed for the night, begins to feel troubled by the baron's eager attentions in the course of a long evening, and tears herself away to return to her room and Edgar. Part Two, The Burning Secret, by Stefan Zweig. Chapter Six, Skirmishing. The count had passed a bad night. It is rather risky trying to sleep after an adventure that has been abruptly broken off. Tossing on his bed, and starting up out of oppressive dreams, the baron was soon regretting that he had not seized the moment. The next morning when he came down he was still sleepy and cross, and in no mood to take up with Edgar, who at sight of him rushed out of a corner and threw his arms about his waist and began to pester him with a thousand questions. The boy was happy to have his big friend to himself once more without having to share him with his mother. He begged him not to tell his stories to her, but only to himself. In spite of her promise, she had not recounted all those wonderful things she had said she would. Edgar assailed the baron with a hundred childish importunities and stormy demonstrations of love. He was so happy at last to have found him again and to be alone with him. He had been waiting for him since early in the morning. The baron answered brusquely, that eternal lying in wait, those silly questions, in short, the boy's unsolicited passion began to annoy him. He was tired of going about all day long with a puppy of twelve talking nonsense. All he cared for now was to strike while the iron was hot and get the mother by himself, the very thing it was difficult to do with the child forever inflicting his presence. For the first time the baron cursed his incautiousness in having inspired so much affection, for he saw no chance, on this occasion at least, to rid himself of his too-too-devoted friend. At any rate, it was worth the trial. The baron waited until ten o'clock, the time Edgar's mother had agreed to go out walking with him. He sat beside the boy, paying no attention to his chatter, and even glancing through the newspaper, though every now and then tossing the child a crumb of talk so as not to insult him. When the hour hand was at ten, and the minute hand was just reaching twelve, he asked Edgar, as though suddenly remembering something, to do him a favor and run across to the next hotel and find out if his cousin, Count Grundheim, had arrived. Delighted at last to be of service to his friend, the unsuspecting child ran off as fast as his legs would carry him, careering down the road so madly that people looked after him in wonder. Count Grundheim, the clerk told him, had not arrived, nor had he even announced his coming. Edgar raced back to bring this information to his friend. But where was his friend? Nowhere in the hall. Up in his room, perhaps. 
Edgar dashed up the stairs and knocked at his door. No answer. He ran down again and searched in the music room, the café, the verandas, the smoking room. In vain. He hurried to his mother's room to see if she knew anything about the baron, but she was gone too. When finally, in his despair, he turned to the porter, he was told the two had gone out together a few minutes before. Edgar waited for their return patiently. He was altogether unsuspecting, and felt quite sure that they would come back soon, because the baron wanted to hear whether or not his cousin had arrived. However, long stretches of time went by, and gradually uneasiness crept upon him. Ever since the moment when that strange, seductive man had entered his little life, never as yet tinged by suspicion, the child had spent his days in one continual state of tension and overexcitement and confusion. In such a highly strung child, every emotion impresses itself as upon soft wax. Edgar's eyelids began to twitch again, and he was already a shade or two paler. He waited and waited, patiently at first, then, in wild excitement, on the verge of tears. Yet no suspicion crept into the child's soul. So blindly trustful was he of his wonderful friend that he fancied there must have been some misunderstanding, and he tortured himself, fearing he had not executed his commission properly. But when they did return at last, how odd that they stood there talking gaily, without showing the faintest surprise, and without apparently having missed him very much. "'We went out expecting to meet you, Eddie,' said the baron, forgetting to ask if the Count had arrived. When Edgar, in consternation that they must have been looking for him on the way between the two hotels, protested that he had taken the straight road, and questioned them about the direction they had gone, his mother cut him off, saying, "'All right, Edgar, all right. Children must be seen and not heard.' There, this was the second time, Edgar thought, flushing with anger, that his mother had so meanly tried to make him look small in front of his friend. Why did she do it? Why did she always want to get him down as a child when, he was convinced, he was no longer a child? Evidently she was jealous of his friend, and was planning to get him all to herself. Yes, that was it. It was she who had purposely led the baron the wrong way but he wouldn't let her treat him like that again. He'd show her. He was going to be spiteful. He wasn't going to say a word to her at table, and he would speak only to his friend. However, it was not so easy to keep quiet as he thought it would be. Things went in a most unanticipated way. Neither his mother nor the baron noticed he was sulking. Why, they did not even pay the slightest attention to him, who the day before had been the medium of their coming together. They talked over his head, and laughed and joked as though he had disappeared under the table. The blood rose to his cheeks, and a lump came into his throat. A horrid sense of his powerlessness overwhelmed him. Was it his doom to sit there quietly, and look on while his mother stole away his friend, the one man he loved, while he, Edgar, made no movement in self-defense, and used no other weapon than silence? He felt as though he must get up and pound the table with his clenched fists just to make them take notice of him. But he restrained himself and merely put down his knife and fork and stopped eating. Even this it was a long time before they observed. It was not until the last course 
that his mother became conscious that he had not tasted his food and asked him if he was not feeling well. "'It's disgusting,' he thought. "'That's all she ever thinks of, whether I'm sick or not. Nothing else about me seems to matter to her.' He told her shortly that he wasn't hungry, which quite satisfied her. Nothing, absolutely nothing forced them to pay attention to him. The baron seemed to have forgotten him completely, at least he never addressed a single remark to him. The hot tears were welling up in his eyes, and finally he had to resort to the childlike device of raising his napkin like a screen to hide the traitorous drops that rolled down his cheeks and salted his lips. When the meal finally came to an end, he drew a sigh of relief. During the meal his mother had proposed a drive to an interesting spot in the neighborhood, and Edgar had listened with his lips between his teeth. So she was not going to allow him a single moment alone with his friend any more. But now, as they got up from table, came something even worse, and Edgar's anger went over into a fury of hatred. Edgar, said his mother, you'll be forgetting everything you learned at school. You had better stay here this afternoon while we're out driving and do a little studying. He clenched his small fists again. There she was, at it again, humiliating him in front of his friend, publicly reminding him that he was still a child who had to go to school and whose presence was merely tolerated by his elders. This time, however, her intentions were altogether too obvious, and Edgar was satisfied to turn away without replying. "'Insulted again,' she said, smiling, and then to the baron, "'Do you really think it's so bad for him to spend an hour studying once in a while?' To this it struck a chill and deadly blow to Edgar's heart. To this the baron, who called himself his friend, and who had made fun of him for being a bookworm, made answer that an hour or two really couldn't do any harm. Was there an agreement between the two? Had they actually allied themselves against him? "'Papa,' said the boy, his eyes flashing anger, "'forbade me studying here. He wants me to get my health back here.' Edgar hurled this out with all his pride in his illness, clinging desperately to his father's dictum and his father's authority. It came out like a threat, and to his immense astonishment it took effect, seeming actually to have made both of them uncomfortable, his mother especially, for she turned her eyes aside and began to drum on the table nervously with her fingers. For a while there was a painful silence, broken finally by the baron, who said with a forced smile, "'It's just as you say, Eddie. I myself don't have to take examinations any more. I failed in all my examinations long ago.' Eddie gave no smile but looked at the baron with a yearning, searching gaze, as if to probe to the innermost of his being. What was taking place in the baron's soul? Something between him and Edgar had changed, and the child knew not what or why. His eyes wandered unsteadily. In his heart went a little rapid hammer. His first suspicion. Chapter 7 the burning secret. What has made them so different? The child pondered while sitting opposite them in the carriage. Why don't they behave toward me as they did at first? Why does Mama avoid my eyes when I look at her? Why does he always try to joke when I'm around and play the clown? 
They don't talk to me as they did yesterday or the day before. Their faces even seem different. Mama's lips are so red she must have rouged them. I never saw her do that before. And he keeps frowning as though we were offended. Could I have said anything to annoy them? No. I haven't said a word. It cannot be on my account that they're so changed. Even their manner toward each other is not the same as it was. They behave as though they had been naughty and didn't dare confess. They don't chat the way they did yesterday, nor laugh. They're embarrassed. They're concealing something. They've got a secret between them that they don't want to tell me. I'm going to find it out. I must. I don't care what happens. I must. I believe I know what it is. It must be the same thing that grown-up people always shut me out from when they talk about it. It's what books speak of, and it comes in operas when the men and women on stage stand singing face to face with their arms spread out and embrace and shove each other away. It must have something to do with my French governess, who behaved so badly with Papa and was dismissed. All these things are connected. I feel they are, but I don't know how. Oh, if I could only find it out and know this secret at last, to possess the key that opens all doors, not to be a child any longer, with everything kept hidden from me and always being held off and deceived. It's now or never. I'm going to tear it from them, that terrible secret. A deep furrow cut itself between the child's brows. He looked almost old as he sat in the carriage, painfully turning this great mystery over in his mind, and never casting a single glance at the landscape, which was shading into all the delicate colors of the spring, the mountains in the freshened green of their pines, the valleys in the mistier greens of budding trees, shrubbery, and young grass. All he had eyes for were the man and the woman on the seat opposite him, as though with this hot gaze he could snatch the secret from the shimmering depths of their eyes like an angler fishing. Nothing gives so keen an edge to the intelligence as a passionate suspicion. All the possibilities of an immature mind are developed by a trail leading into obscurity. Sometimes it is only a single light door that keeps children out of the world that we call the real world, and a chance puff of wind may blow it open. Edgar, all at once, felt himself tangibly closer, closer than ever before, to the unknown, the great secret. It was right next to him, still veiled and unriddled, but very near. It excited him, and it was this that lent him his sudden solemnity. Unconsciously, he sensed that he was approaching the outer edges of childhood. The two sitting opposite both felt some kind of dull resistance around them, without realizing that it emanated from the boy. The presence of a third person in the carriage constrained them, and those two dark glowing orbs opposite acted as a check. They scarcely dared to speak or look up, and it was impossible for them to drop back into the light, easy conversational tone of the day before, so entangled were they already in ardent confidences and words suggestive of secret caresses. They would start a subject, promptly come to a halt, say a broken phrase or two, make another attempt, then lapse again into complete silence. Everything they said seemed always to stumble over the child's obstinate silence 
and fall flat. The mother was especially oppressed by her son's sullen silence. Giving him a cautious glance out of the corners of her eyes, she was startled to observe for the first time in the manner Edgar compressed his lips a resemblance to her husband when he was annoyed. At that particular moment, when she was flirting with an adventure, she didn't want to be reminded of her husband. The boy, only a foot or two away, with his dark, restless eyes and that suggestion behind his pale forehead of lying in wait, seemed to her like a ghost, a guardian of her conscience, doubly intolerable there in the close quarters of the carriage. Suddenly, for one second, Edgar looked up and met his mother's gaze. Instantly, they dropped their eyes in the consciousness that they were spying on each other. Till then, each had had implicit faith in the other. Now, something had come between mother and child and made a difference. For the first time in their lives they set to observing each other, to separating their destinies, with secret hatred already mounting in their hearts, though the feeling was too young for them to admit it. When the horses pulled up at the hotel entrance, all three were relieved. The excursion had been a failure, each of them felt, though they did not dare say so. Edgar was the first to get out of the carriage. His mother excused herself for going straight up to her room, pleading a headache. She was tired and wanted to be by herself. Edgar and the Baron were left alone together. The Baron paid the coachman, looked at his watch, and mounted the steps to the hall, paying no attention to Edgar, and passed him with that easy sway of his slim back which had so enchanted the child that he had immediately begun to imitate the Baron's walk. The Baron brushed past him, right past him. Evidently he had forgotten him, and left him to stand there beside the driver and the horses as though he did not belong to him. Something in Edgar broke in two, as the man who in spite of everything he still idolized slighted him like that. A bitter despair filled his heart when the Baron left without so much as touching him with his cloak or saying a single word, when he, Edgar, was conscious of having done no wrong. His painfully enforced self-restraint gave way, the too heavy burden of dignity that he had imposed upon himself dropped from his narrow little shoulders, and he became the child again, small and humble as he had been the day before. At the top of the steps he confronted the baron and said in a strained voice, thick with suppressed tears, "'What have I done to you that you don't notice me any more? Why are you always like this with me now, and Mama too? Why are you always sending me off? Am I a nuisance to you?' or have I done anything to offend you?' The baron was startled. There was something in the child's voice that upset him at first, then stirred him to tenderness and sympathy for the unsuspecting boy. "'What a silly boy you are, Eddie! I'm just out of sorts today. You're a dear boy, and I really love you.' He tousled Edgar's hair, yet with averted face, so as not to be obliged to see those great moist, beseeching child's eyes. The comedy he was playing was becoming painful. He was beginning to be ashamed of having trifled so insolently with the child's love. That small voice, quivering with suppressed sobs, cut him to the quick. "'Go upstairs now, Eddie. We'll get along together this evening just as nicely as ever. You'll see. You won't let Mama send me right off to bed, will you?' "'No, no, I won't, Eddie,' the Baron smiled. "'Just go on up.' 
I must dress for dinner. Edgar went, made happy for the moment. Soon, however, the hammer began to knock at his heart again. He was years older since the day before. A strange guest, mistrust, had lodged itself in his child's breast. He waited for the decisive test at table. Nine o'clock came, and his mother had not yet said a word about his going to bed. Why did she let him stay on just that day of all days, she who was usually so exact? It bothered him. Had the baron told her what he had said? He was consumed with regret suddenly that he had run after the baron so trustingly. At ten o'clock his mother rose and took leave of the baron, who, oddly, showed no surprise at her early departure and made no attempt to detain her as he usually did. The hammer beat harder and harder at Edgar's breast. Now he must apply the test with exceeding care. He, too, behaved as though he suspected nothing and followed his mother to the door. Actually, in that second, he caught a smiling glance that traveled over his head straight to the baron and seemed to indicate a mutual understanding, a secret held in common. So the baron had betrayed him. That was why his mother had left so early. He, Edgar, was to be lulled with a sense of security so that he would not get in their way the next day. Mean, he murmured. What's that? his mother asked. Nothing he muttered between clenched teeth. He, too, had his secret. It was called hatred, a boundless hatred for the two of them. Chapter 8 Silence The tumult of Edgar's conflicting emotions subsided into one smooth, clear feeling of hatred and open hostility. Now that he was certain of being in their way, the imposition of his presence upon them gave him a voluptuous satisfaction. Always accompanying them with the compressed strength of his enmity, he would goad them into madness. He gloated over the thought. The first to whom he showed his teeth was the baron, when he came downstairs in the morning and said, "'Hello, Edgar,' with genuine heartiness in his voice. Edgar remained sitting in the easy chair and answered curtly with a hard, morning. Your mother down yet? Edgar kept his eyes glued to his newspaper. I don't know. The baron was puzzled. Slept badly, Eddie? The baron was counting on a joke to help him over the situation again, but Edgar merely tossed out a contemptuous no and continued to study the paper. Stupid boy, the baron murmured, shrugging his shoulders and walking away. Hostilities had been declared. Toward his mother, Edgar's manner was cool and polite. When she made an awkward attempt to send him off to the tennis court, he gave her a quiet rebuff, and his smile and the bitter curl at the corner of his mouth showed that he was no longer to be fooled. "'I'd rather go walking with you, Mama," he said, with assumed friendliness, looking her straight in the eyes. His answer was obviously not to her taste, she hesitated and seemed to be looking for something. "'Wait for me here,' she decided at last, and went into the dining-room for breakfast. Edgar waited, but his distrust was lively and his instincts all astir extracted a secret hostile intent 
from everything the baron and his mother now said. Suspicion was beginning to give him remarkable perspicacity sometimes. Instead, therefore, of waiting in the hall as he had been bidden, he went outside to a spot from which he commanded a view not only of the main entrance but all of the exits from the hotel. Something in him scented deception. He hid himself behind a pile of wood, as the Indians do in the books, and when, about half an hour later, he saw his mother actually coming out of a side door, carrying a bunch of exquisite roses, and followed by the baron, the traitor, he laughed in glee. They seemed to be gay and full of spirits. Were they feeling relieved at having escaped him to be alone with their secret? They laughed as they talked, and turned into the road leading to the woods. The moment had come. Edgar, as though mere chance had brought him that way, strolled out from behind the woodpile and walked to meet them, with the utmost composure, allowing himself ample time to feast upon their surprise. When they caught sight of him, they were quite taken aback, he saw, and exchanged a glance of astonishment. The child advanced slowly, with an assumed nonchalant air, never removing his mocking gaze from their faces. "'Oh, there you are, Eddie. We were looking for you inside,' his mother said finally. "'The shameless liar,' the child thought, but held his lips set hard, keeping back the secret of his hatred. The three stood there irresolutely, one watchful of the others. "'Well, let's go on,' said the woman, annoyed but resigned, and plucked one of the lovely roses to bits. Her nostrils were quivering, a sign in her of extreme anger. Edgar stood still, as though it were a matter of indifference to him whether they walked on or not, looked up at the sky, waited for them to start, then followed leisurely. The Baron made one more attempt. There's a tennis tournament today. Have you ever seen one? The Baron was not worth an answer any more. Edgar merely gave him a scornful look and pursed his lips for whistling. That was his full reply. His hatred showed its bared teeth. Edgar's unwished-for presence weighed upon the two like a nightmare. They felt very like convicts who follow their keeper, gritting their teeth and clenching their fists in secret. Edgar neither did nor said anything out of the way, yet he became every moment more unbearable to them with his watchful glances out of great moist eyes, and his dogged sullenness, which was like a prolonged growl at any attempt they made at an advance. "'Go on ahead of us,' his mother suddenly snapped, made altogether ill at ease by his intent listening to everything she and the baron were saying. "'Don't keep getting under my feet. It makes me nervous.' Edgar obeyed, but at every few steps he would face about and stand still, waiting for them to catch up if they had lingered behind, letting his gaze travel over them diabolically and enmeshing them in a fiery net of hate in which they felt they were being inextricably entangled. His malevolent silence corroded their good spirits like an acid. His gaze extinguished their conversation. The baron made no other attempts to court the woman beside him, feeling in a fury that she was slipping away from him because her fear of that annoying, obnoxious child was cooling the passion he had fanned into a flame with so much difficulty. After repeated unsuccessful attempts at a conversation, they jogged along the path in complete silence, 
hearing nothing but the rustling of the leaves and their own dejected footsteps. There was active hostility now in each of the three. The betrayed child perceived with satisfaction how their anger gathered helplessly against his own little despised person. Every now and then he cast a shrewd, ironic look at the baron's sullen face, and saw how he was muttering curses between gritted teeth and had to restrain himself from hurling them out at him. He also observed with sarcastic glee how his mother's fury was mounting, and that both of them were longing for an opportunity to attack him and send him away, or render him innocuous. But he gave them no opening. The tactics of his hatred had been prepared too well in advance, and left no spots exposed. "'Let us go back,' his mother burst out, feeling she could no longer control herself, and that she must do something, if only cry out under the imposition of this torture. "'A pity,' said Edgar quietly. "'It's so lovely.' The other two realized the child was making fun of them, but they dared not retort, their tyrant having learned marvelously in two days the supreme art of self-control. Not a quiver in his face betrayed his cutting irony. Without another word being spoken, they retraced the long way back to the hotel. When Edgar and his mother were alone together in her room, her excitement was still seething. She tossed her gloves and parasol down angrily. Edgar did not fail to note these signs, and was aware that her electrified nerves would seek to discharge themselves, but he courted an outburst and remained in her room on purpose. She paced up and down, seated herself, drummed on the table with her fingers, and jumped up again. "'How untidy you look! You go around filthy! It's a disgrace! Aren't you ashamed of yourself, a boy of your age?' Without a word of opposition, Edgar went to his mother's toilet table and washed and combed himself. His cold, obdurate silence and the ironic quiver of his lips drove her to a frenzy. Nothing would have satisfied her so much as to give him a sound beating. "'Go to your room!' she screamed, unable to endure his presence a second longer. Edgar smiled and left the room. How the two dreaded every moment in his presence, the merciless grip of his eyes! The worse they felt, the more he gloated, and the more challenging became his satisfaction. Edgar tortured the two defenseless creatures with the almost animal cruelty of children. The baron, because he had not given up hope of playing a trick on the lad, and was thinking of nothing but the goal of his desires, could still contain his anger, but Edgar's mother was losing her hold upon herself and kept constantly slipping. It was a relief to her to be able to shriek at him. "'Don't play with your fork!' she cried at table. "'You're an ill-bred little brat. You don't deserve to be in the company of grown-up people.' Edgar smiled, with his head tipped a trifle to one side. He knew his mother's outburst was a sign of desperation, and took pride in having made her betray herself. His manner and glance were now as composed as a physician's. In previous days he might have answered back rudely so as to annoy her, but hatred teaches many things, and quickly. How he kept silent, and still kept quiet, and still kept quiet, until his mother, under the pressure of his silence, began to scream. She could stand it no longer. When they rose from table, and Edgar, with his matter-of-course air of attachment, proceeded to follow her and the baron, her pent-up anger suddenly burst out, 
she cast prudence to the winds and let out the truth. Tortured by his crawling presence, she reared like a horse pestered by crawling flies. Why do you keep tagging after me like a child of three? I don't want you around all the time. Children should not always be with their elders. Please remember that. Spend an hour or two by yourself for once. Read something or do whatever you want. Leave me alone. You make me nervous with your sneaking about and your loathsome sulking. He had wrested it from her at last, the confession. He smiled, while the baron and his mother seemed embarrassed. She swung about, turning her back, and was about to leave in a fury with herself for having admitted so much to her little son, when Edgar's voice came, saying coolly, "'Papa doesn't want me to be by myself here. He made me promise not to be wild and to stay with you.' Edgar emphasized Papa, having noticed on the previous occasion when he used the word that it had had a paralyzing effect upon both of them. In some way or other, therefore, he inferred, his father must be implicated in this great mystery and must have a secret power over them, because this very mention of him seemed to frighten and distress them. They said nothing this time either. They laid down their arms. The mother left the room, accompanied by the baron, and Edgar followed behind, not humbly like a servitor, but hard, strict, inexorable, like a guard over prisoners, rattling the chains against which they strained in vain. Hatred had steeled his child's strength. He, the ignorant one, was stronger than the two older people whose hands were held fast by the great secret. Chapter 9. The Liars Time was pressing. The baron's holiday would soon come to an end, and the few days that remained must be exploited to the full. There was no use, both he and Edgar's mother felt, trying to break down the excited child's stubbornness, so they resorted to the extreme measure of disgraceful evasion and flight, merely to escape for an hour or two from under his yoke. "'Please take these letters and have them registered at the post-office,' his mother said to Edgar in the hall, while the baron was outside ordering a cab. Edgar, remembering that until then his mother had sent the hotel boys on her errands, was suspicious. Were they hatching something against him? He hesitated. Where will you wait for me? Here? For sure? Yes. Now be sure to. Don't leave before I come back. You'll wait right here in the hall, won't you? In the consciousness of his superiority, he had adopted a commanding tone with his mother. Many things had changed since the day before yesterday. At the door he encountered the baron and spoke to him for the first time in two days. I'm going to the post office to register these letters. My mother is waiting for me. Please do not go until I come back. The baron hastened past him. All right, we'll wait. Edgar ran at top speed to the post office, where he had to wait while a man ahead of him asked a dozen silly questions. Finally, his turn came, and at last he was free to run back to the hotel, which he reached just in time to see the couple driving off. He turned rigid with anger and had the impulse to pick up a stone and throw it at them. So they had escaped him after all. But by what a mean, contemptible lie! He had discovered the day before that his mother lied, 
but that she could so wantonly disregard a definite expressed promise shattered his last remnant of confidence. He could not understand life at all any more now, now that he realized that the words which he had thought clothed a reality were nothing more than bursting bubbles. But what a dreadful secret it must be that drove grown-up people to such lengths to lie to him, a child, and to steal away like criminals. In the books he had read, men deceived and murdered one another for money, power, empire. But what was the motive here? What were his mother and the baron after? Why did they hide from him? What were they with their lies trying to conceal? He racked his brain for answers to the riddle. Vaguely, he divined that this secret was the bolt which, when unlocked, opened the door to let out childhood, and to master it meant to be grown up, to be a man at last. Oh, to know what it was! But he could no longer think clearly. His rage at their having escaped him was like a fire that sent scorching smoke into his eyes and kept him from seeing. He ran to the woods, and in the nick of time reached a quiet, dark spot where no one could see him, and burst into tears. "'Liars! Dogs! Mean! Cheats! Scoundrels!' He felt he had to scream the words out, or else he would have choked. All the pent-up rage, impatience, annoyance, curiosity, helplessness, and the sense of betrayal of the last few days— which he had suppressed in the fond belief that he was an adult and must behave like an adult, now gushed from him in a fit of weeping and sobbing. It was the final crying spell of his childhood. For the last time he was giving in to the bliss of weeping like a woman. In that moment of uncontrolled fury his tears washed away his whole childhood, trust, love, credulity, Respect. The boy who returned to the hotel was different from the child that had left it. He was cool and level headed. He went first to his room and washed his face carefully so that the two should not enjoy the triumph of seeing the traces of his tears. Then he planned his strategy and waited patiently without the least agitation. There happened to be a good many guests in the hall when the carriage pulled up at the door. Two gentlemen were playing chess, a few others were reading their papers, and a group of ladies sat together talking. Edgar sat among them quietly, a trifle pale, with wavering glances. When his mother and the baron appeared in the doorway, rather embarrassed at encountering him so soon, and began to stammer out their excuses, prepared in advance, he confronted them calmly and said to the baron, in a tone of challenge, "'I have something to say to you, sir.' "'Very well. Later. A little later.' Edgar pitched his voice louder, and enunciating every word clearly and distinctly, said, so that everyone in the hall could hear, "'No, now. You behaved like a villain. You lied to me. You knew my mother was waiting for me, and you—Edgar!' cried his mother." feeling all glances upon her, and swooped down on him. But Edgar, realizing that she wanted to shut him down, screamed at the top of his voice, "'I say again, in front of everybody, that you lied. You lied disgracefully. It was a dirty trick.' The baron went white. The people stared. 
Some looked amused. The mother clutched the boy, who was quivering with excitement, and stammered out hoarsely, "'Go right to your room, or I'll give you a beating right here in front of everybody.' But Edgar had already calmed down. He regretted he had been so violent, and was unhappy with himself that he had not coolly challenged the baron as he had intended to do. But his anger had been stronger than his will. He turned and calmly walked to the staircase with an air of perfect composure. "'You must excuse him,' the mother still went on, stammering, confused by the rather wicked glances fixed upon her. "'He's a nervous child, you know.' She was afraid of nothing so much as a scandal, and she knew she must assume innocence. Instead, therefore, of taking to instant flight, she went up to the desk and asked for her mail, and made several inquiries before rustling up the stairs as though nothing had happened. But behind her she was quite conscious she had left a wake of whispered comment and suppressed laughter. On the first landing she hesitated, the rest of the steps she mounted more slowly. She was always unequal to a serious situation, and was afraid of the inevitable confrontation with Edgar. She was guilty, she could not deny that, and she dreaded the child's curious gaze which paralyzed her and filled her with uncertainty. In her timidity she decided to try gentleness, because in a battle the excited child she knew was the stronger. She turned the knob gently. Edgar was sitting there, quiet and cool, his eyes turned upon her at her entrance, not even betraying curiosity. He seemed to be very sure of himself. "'Edgar,' she began in the most motherly of tones, "'what got into you? I was ashamed of you. How can one be so ill-bred, especially a child, to a grown-up person? You must ask the baron's pardon at once.' I will not. As he spoke, Edgar was looking out of the window, and his words might have been meant for the trees. His sureness was beginning to astonish his mother. Edgar, what's the matter with you? You're so different from what you were. You used to be a good, sensible child with whom a person could reason, and all at once you act as though the devil had got into you. What have you got against the baron? You liked him so much at first— he was so nice to you. Yes, because he wanted to make your acquaintance. Nonsense! How can you think anything like that? The child flared up. He is a liar. He's false through and through. Whatever he does is calculated and mean. He wanted to get to know you, so he made friends with me and promised me a dog. I don't know what he promised you, or why he's so friendly with you, but he wants something of you too, Mama. I'm sure of it. If he didn't, he wouldn't be so polite and friendly. He's a bad man. He lies. Just take a look at him once, and see how false his eyes are. Oh, I hate him. Edgar, how can you talk like that? She was confused, and did not know what to reply. The feeling stirred in her that the child was right. Yes, he's a bad man. You can't make me believe he isn't. You must see he is. Why is he afraid of me? Why does he try to keep out of my way? Because he knows I can see through him. He's a villain, that's what he is. How can you talk like that? She kept protesting feebly. Her brain seemed to have dried up. All of a sudden a great fear came upon her, whether of the baron or the boy she did not know. 
Edgar saw that his warning was taking effect, and he was lured on to win her over to his side and have a comrade in his hatred and hostility toward the baron. He went over to her gently, put his arms about her, and said in a voice flattering with the excitement quivering in it, "Mamma, you yourself must have noticed that it isn't anything good that he wants. He's made you quite different. You're the one that's changed, not I. He's set you against me just to have you to himself. I'm sure he means to deceive you. I don't know what he promised you, but whatever it is, he doesn't intend to keep his promise. You ought to be careful of him. A man who will lie to one person will lie to another person, too. He's a bad, bad man. You mustn't trust him. Edgar's voice, soft and almost tearful, seemed to speak out of her own heart. Since the day before, an uncomfortable feeling had been rising in her which told her the same, with growing emphasis. But she was ashamed to tell her own child he was right, and she took refuge, as so many do when under the stress of overwhelming feeling, in rude rejoinder. She straightened herself up. "'Children don't understand such things. You have no right to mix into such matters. You must behave yourself, that's all.' Edgar's face frosted over again. "'All right. I've warned you. Then you won't ask the baron's pardon?' "'No.' They stood confronting with each other, and the mother knew her authority was at stake. "'Then you will stay up here and eat by yourself, and you won't be allowed to come to table and sit with us until you have asked his pardon. I'll teach you manners. You won't budge from this room until I give you permission to. Do you hear?' Edgar smiled. That cunning smile seemed to be part of his lips now. Inwardly he was angry at himself. How foolish to have let his heart run away with him again, and to have tried to warn her, the liar. His mother rustled out without giving him another glance. That caustic gaze of his frightened her. The child had become an absolute annoyance to her since she realized that he had his eyes open and said the very thing she did not want to know or hear. It was uncanny to have an inner voice, her conscience, dissevered from herself, incorporated in her child, going about as her child, warning her and making fun of her. Until then the child had stayed alongside of her life, as an ornament, a toy, a thing to love and have confidence in, now and then perhaps a burden, but always something that floated along in the same current as her own life, keeping even pace with it. For the first time this something reared itself up and opposed her will. A feeling akin to hatred mingled itself in her thoughts of her child now. And yet, as she was descending the stairs, a little tired, childish voice came from her own breast, saying, "'You ought to be careful of him.' On one of the landings was a mirror. The gleam of it struck her eyes as she paused to scrutinize herself questioningly. She looked deeper and deeper into her own face until the lips of her image parted in a slight smile and formed themselves as if to utter a dangerous word. The voice within her was still speaking, but she threw back her shoulders as though to shake off all those invisible thoughts, gave her reflection in the glass a bright glance, caught up her skirt, and descended the rest of the stairs with the determined manner of a player who has tossed his last gold coin jingling down on the table. 
You've been listening to the second of four parts of Stefan Zweig's The Burning Secret. Please join me next week for part three. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best. Thank you.